For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Howard David Live. As we get it going on a Tuesday, we bring in Sean Powell from NBA.com. Sean, let's take a bite of the Big Apple first. New York City basketball, the street game, uh, is going through a, a minefield right now. Uh, the Nets awaiting the return of Kevin Durant. Um, this, they're right now situated in the eighth spot in the East. The Ben Simmons trade with uh, James Harden. Simmons arrives on the scene. The question is, number one, when does Ben Simmons make his appearance with Brooklyn? What do you hear? Well, I think uh, physically he's probably and surprisingly um, better than you might expect for someone who really hasn't played basketball since uh, the spring of last year, spring, summer of last year. Uh, Number one, he keeps in great shape uh, and he's young. Uh, and I think he always was working out, you know, while he was on his hiatus from the Sixers. But of course, that's not NBA game shape. So the question really isn't when he comes back. The, the bigger question is when does he round himself into shape, both physically and mentally, and be prepared to deal with the NBA grind? Uh, fortunately for, for Brooklyn, um, there's still about, what, 24, 25 games or so left before the playoffs. So he'll have some time to get some reps, and some reps, and plus, he's not going in a situation where they'll need him for like 30, 35 minutes back right away. The Nets, as constructed, and again, assuming Kevin Durant comes back, it's a pretty deep team. Uh, to the point of the trade that sent Harden to Philadelphia, uh, I don't know if you were aware of this undertone that was going on. Uh, apparently, there was a lot of dissension underneath. Uh, and there was an outward where there was there was yelling in the locker room or anything like that. But you get a sense in listening to Kevin Durant and listening to other players that uh, James Harden was not really very welcome in the Brooklyn locker room. I think James Harden just simply didn't buy in. Um, I don't think he went there. It wasn't he, even he said it wasn't his first choice. And when you're somewhere in a place and you don't completely buy in. You can't hide that. You might hide it a little bit from the general public. They only see you on the court, on the floor, and things like that. But you can't really hide that from your teammates. Just, they see you in practice. Uh, 
you know, they see you in the bus, they see you in situations where the general public doesn't see you. And, you know, your body language, the things you say, whatever, will reveal you for your, your true feelings. And so when you don't buy in, then people think you got one foot in the door and one foot out the door. Uh, it's hard when you're a team, you want to be unified. And I don't think the Brooklyn Nets felt uh, unified with James Harden. You know, no offense, you know, look, I mean, some things just don't work out. And I personally think Brooklyn fleeced the Sixers in that trade. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, just look at the other pieces. Uh, Seth Curry and Andre Drummond, they've already played, I think, three games with Brooklyn. And uh, particularly Curry has shown the ability to, to knock it down from deep uh, and has helped the Nets. So I think they were two and one of those three games. But Andre Drummond is going to have to work his way into a physical condition where he's going to be able to play the kind of minutes that I think they want him to play. Because, I mean, he was he was playing 17 or 18 minutes a game in Philadelphia. They're going to, the Nets are going to need him to play more than that. Uh, perhaps. It depends on what kind of system uh, that Steve Nash puts in place. Um, it also depends on the matchups. Uh, look, if you're playing Joel Embiid, you'd probably be a, a little bit more comfortable uh, playing um, Drummond, who can offer a better size than you would, say, LaMarcus Aldridge in middle. But the bottom line is, Drum I don't think that Brooklyn's going to ask Drummond to be like what you would think a typical starting center should get in terms of minutes. Uh, I'd be surprised if he got more than 20 a night. LaMarcus Aldridge is actually pretty good and a much better offensive option than Andre Drummond. Uh, but I think together, that two-headed center can be sufficient for a team that's really not geared towards, you know, that that position. I mean, the Nets are geared towards more of a they're more of a perimeter team. That's where their strength lies. That's where the ball is going to go, and they're only going to ask whoever plays center to do you know little things here and there. You know, play good interior defense and grab some boards. But other than that, I'd be shocked if uh, either Lamarcus or Andre Drummond even have their number called in terms of plays. The, uh, your statement before about saying that the Philadelphia 76ers were fleeced in the trade, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, Harden, look, we know what Harden is, but you also know what Harden isn't. Uh, and he, he goes down frequently. He's not, he's not been in physical shape that you need to be to play in the NBA. And so now he's going to play along with Joel Embiid. Now, as you well know, Joel Embiid sits out there on the top of the circle sometimes beyond the arc, and he'll either fire up a three or he'll initiate the offense. So there's going to have to be an agreement between him and Harden about how things are done, right? Yeah, I mean, first of all, if you're, if you're James Harden, you're running out of time, you're running out of excuses, and you're running out of uh, all-star teammates. It didn't work out with him and Dwight Howard in Houston, didn't work out with Russell Westbrook in Houston, didn't work out with Chris Paul in Houston, didn't work out with KD. In Brooklyn, Kyrie Irving in Brooklyn, now he has Joel Embiid. Now look, it's the best big man James Harden's ever had. So uh, you got to give him the benefit of the doubt there that the pick and they can run the pick and roll of death. I mean, who are you going to guard on that pick and roll? That can be vicious. If they, in a best case scenario, this would be the best pick and roll basketball since Stockton and Malone. Because you're talking about a big man, Joel Embiid, who's on an MVP tear. And you're talking about James Harden, who can create off the dribble and hit the outside shot. So if they get that synchronicity right, they're going to be very, very tough, that duo. That said, they got fleeced. You know, look, not only did Brooklyn get Ben Simmons, who 
you would like to think resolves all of or most of Brooklyn's weaknesses in terms of his defense and you know uh, he can rebound, do, do some playmaking, that kind of thing, create for his teammates. But they took two valuable reserves away from Philadelphia. Now the the, the, the Nets didn't really need Andre Drummond. The Nets really didn't need uh, uh, Seth Curry. Nets have outside shooter shooting. Patty Mills, Joe Harris when he comes back, KD, uh, obviously Kyrie. They didn't really need him, but the Sixers needed him. So what they did was hurt one of their closest competitors in the East by removing that value, those two valuable players, the Sixers. So now you're asking an awful lot of Harden and Embiid to produce on a consistent basis in Philadelphia and burn a lot of minutes too. Otherwise, after those two, you really don't have that much in Philadelphia. And I know Tyrese Maxey's playing well, you know, and I know there's, you know, you have a couple other players, but those two are the meat and potatoes of that team. Uh, I, I, my guess is that on March the 10th, uh, you're going to find a way to go to Philadelphia to see the Nets play the Sixers, right? Well, that depends. If Ben Simmons is going to find a way, if he finds a way, then I'll find a way. <laughs> I uh, I think it's going to be very intriguing to say the least. They're two and a half games out of the sixth spot right now. Uh, unlike uh, the New York City mandate, which changes, which possibly could change, uh, Kyrie Irving can play only in ten more games of the remaining twenty-three that the uh, that the Nets have. Uh, that I'm going to take it back a little bit before the trade. I'm wondering if ever the conversation with Sean Marks on the hierarchy of the Nets organization, if they ever discussed trading Kyrie Irving. Uh, I, I would say no. Uh, and for one reason. It doesn't matter if Kyrie Irving can't play all the regular season games. It really doesn't matter. I mean, when Kevin Durant comes back and they just signed Goran Dragic to help out the backcourt, now they got Seth Curry. Yeah, none of them are Kyrie Irving, but... Uh, they're going to be in the playoffs. And so what matters is Kyrie Irving in the playoffs. And you would like to think from Brooklyn's standpoint that with, you know, the, the virus numbers going down spring and summertime, the mass mandate is being removed. You would like to think that the current administration in New York City will say, okay, well, we don't have to have as many barriers up in this low season of the virus as we would need in the high season of the virus. So you would like to think from Brooklyn's standpoint, he, they might say, okay, yeah, well, since we're relaxing everything else, we'll also relax this. The ultimate power play, if Brooklyn really wanted to play that card, the NBA wanted to play that card, they'll say, okay, we'll go play in the, uh, over in the Prudential Center in Newark, something like that. Play our own games there. Kyrie Irving can play. Uh, or, you know, go some, go outside the city or whatever. But I suspect that Kyrie Irving's going to be eligible to play home games once the playoffs start. Yeah, let's go beyond that. What about next year? He's a free agent. You think that he's, Do you think they're going to re-sign him? Well, uh, you know, that's also up to Kyrie Irving. Uh, and, yes, yeah, do, do you re-sign him with, all, with this cloud over his head? and Kyrie being Kyrie and things like that, I suspect they will because it keeps them a championship team. And I also have faith in Sean Marks. Sean Marks, to me, is one of the top five general managers in basketball. 
what he's done with that team since he came there. Remember, they were stripped all of their number one picks. They really didn't have that many assets and things like that. What he's done since he's been there has been phenomenal. You know, getting Kevin Durant, you know, getting Kyrie Irving, uh, you know, getting Cam in the first round, late first round this year, uh, you know, adding, you know, Blake Griffin, LaMarcus Aldridge, uh, now Goran Dragic, uh, Seth, making that trade, Seth Curry, filling out the other spots around, you know, these three superstars. I'm, I'm including Ben Simmons with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. I just think he's done a phenomenal job to put Brooklyn in position to win a championship. Sean, you and I both know that the Nets are not really a good defensive team. I think when Ben Simmons gets into the rotation and is playing, you know, significant minutes, he makes them better defensively. We know that. Yeah, I think it was uh, addition by subtraction, subtracting James Harden and adding Ben Simmons. And also, when you're talking about the Nets not being a great defensive team, keep in mind that Kevin Durant has missed some time, and he's a very good defender. Yeah. Uh, and Kyrie Irving is a is a decent to good defender. Okay, he he can shut down the passing lanes. He's got quick hands. Uh, so I think there'll be a better defensive defensive team once they become whole. Uh, then it becomes about the matchups once the playoffs start. You know, certain certain teams match up better defensively than other teams. So it depends on who they see along the road through the playoffs and, you know, if they're lucky and fortunate towards the NBA Finals, uh, whether or not they really need to be a great defensive team. Like, for example, if they have a bad matchup problem with Miami, maybe that's a little bit of trouble, but maybe Miami has to play someone else before they play Brooklyn and Miami loses that series. So all of a sudden, problem solved. So then I think it just comes down to the matchups defensively. Right. Talking with Sean Powell, take a bite of the Big Apple with Sean. Uh, as for the Knicks, I think it's fair to say that they're all on notice from the president, Leon Rose, to the coach, Tom Thibodeau. Would you agree? You know, I, I do agree, but I have to temper that a little bit in that the Knicks always seem to have to make changes. At some point, you have to stabilize. At some point, you have to be patient. Now, maybe this is the wrong group to be patient with. I don't know. And if you look back in the past, maybe James Dolan was overly patient with the wrong people. If you, you know, you know, just look at the Knicks history, and you probably should have pulled the plug a little bit quicker. But what you want to see from the Knicks is some stability. Yes, has this been a step backward this season? Absolutely. But I also think last season was fool's gold. I didn't think they were that good. Mm. I, just, I, I just didn't think they were that good. And so they were fortunate. It was a shortened season. You know, they were fortunate. Julius Randle had a career year. A lot of things fell right for them. And so the people, in, the fans in New York, and even media to that extent, they were so starved for hope is that when they finally got some hope last season, they figured, oh, okay, well, it's only going to take a next step up from here, from here, from here. And when it didn't happen, people were looking at, the Knicks as a disappointment. I actually thought last year they were just overrated. And then and then if you compare that to this year, well, then the deflation level really shouldn't be that severe. I didn't think they were that good to begin with. No, I agree. I agree. I mean, from, you know, in the in the palace of the uh, we're all going to swear to the Knicks, 
they're all they're, they're all, they have blinders on. They had blinders on last year when they went into the Atlanta series. Everybody said, "Well, they're going to take care of the Hawks." Uh, and anybody would listen to me, a friends of mine that are Knicks fans, I say, "You guys are kidding yourself." The Atlanta Hawks are going to knock the Knicks silly. Watch, and they beat them in five, as you well know. And I said, you know what they did? They exposed the Knicks. And so their fourth place finish was a little bit of a mirage to where I looked at the East, and I said this to you before, they were going to be deeper and tougher than, than ever we can remember in recent history. I mean, just look, at you go from the top where the, heats, the Heat and the Bulls are tied at 38 and 21 at, with 21 losses. There's seven losses that separate one through eight. It's very tough. Yeah, and then last season, just going back to last season, you knew Miami was going to come back better, right? And, and, and they did. Um, you knew Chicago, once they got DeMar DeRozan, at least most, some people thought that he was going to be a good fit there because people thought he was going to the Lakers. Well, you knew Chicago was going to be a little bit better. Uh, the surprise team, obviously, is Cleveland. And you could argue that the, if Cleveland's in fourth place, you, you, could, you can argue that that's where the Knicks, quote-unquote, were supposed to be. All right, well, but Cleveland, things worked out for them. Milwaukee, Boston, Toronto, all those other teams are good. You know, Brooklyn was going to be good. So the bottom line is, you know, the Knicks, yeah, I agree with everything you you said. I think for them, and I said it at the time last year, I thought they should have traded Julius Randle. And and I thought people would have said that I would have, I was crazy. This is a young player. He's a, on his way to being an all-star game. This is exactly who I said, no, you sell high. You don't. In, in, in this league, you sell high. And I think they could have gotten a lot for Julius Randle at that point. I thought Julius Randle was just having his career apex. And as we see, you know, he's not a bad player. I just don't think he's a, a guy who's, if you're trying to win a championship, he's your best player. Well, I don't know if you're going to win a championship. He's, if he's your second or third best player, okay. But if he's your best player, I mean, I'm not so sure. Well, when you mentioned about trading Randall, that brings me back to Leon Rose. He did nothing at the trade deadline. Uh, and, and I'm saying to myself, why? in other words, you, you're comfortable with this roster because you didn't trade. You're right about Julius Randall. He's not a superstar. He's a very good player, made the all-star team, comeback player of the year, and all the other stuff last year. He is probably a good number two on a better team, or a number three even, but he's not a number one. We all know that. So... You look for you look at Leon Rose, and uh, help me out with Wesley's last name. Uh, uh, William Wesley. William Wesley. Uh, William Wesley reportedly has gotten uh, James Dolan's ear, and he's basically been very down on Tom Thibodeau. Now, look, we know what James Dolan is. James Dolan is only going to hear what people are telling him that he trusts. He doesn't know. He's not a basketball guy. Wesley supposedly is, and if it comes down to the end of the year and they're still and they they're out of the playoffs, they're in the lottery. I wouldn't be surprised to see Tom Thibodeau go. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised either, um, and that doesn't mean he deserves to go. Whatever, it's just the way things probably shook out. Um, but going back to the Knicks, um, they really don't have a lot of assets that other teams want. I, I mean, R.J. Barrett, of course. But R.J. Barrett is, uh, again, a, a decent player. You know, he's young. He'll probably get a little bit better. I don't know if he'll ever be a superstar in this league. Uh, and then what else do the Knicks have that other teams want in the trade? So, yeah, I, on one hand, you can say, yeah, the Knicks should have done something, should have done something. But on the other hand, 
what player on their roster are other teams just salivating over? And I don't see one. Now, you can fault Leon Rose for not stocking this team enough of players that other teams might salivate over. But, and then Leon Rose is a first-time general manager. You know, this guy was a player agent for a long time. And in that sense, he's, a, he's somewhat like Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson was never a, a general manager when he took the job, you know, with the Knicks, and that didn't turn out very well. Uh, maybe this is probably more par for the course. Who knows? But I do know that the Knicks must do something this offseason. Uh, I wouldn't do I wouldn't do something recklessly and endanger my future or anything like that. But they've got to find a way to, to stop Kyle Bortown. Now Cam Reddish, they got him in a trade. But then Thibodeau doesn't play him, so we don't know how good he is. Uh, see, that's a, that's the situation that the Knicks are in. Uh, and then when you look across the river, and Brooklyn is a complete opposite. You know, they they make the right personnel decisions, add the right pieces, veteran pieces. They're, they're drafting decent players even late in the first round, and they convince a superstar like Kevin Durant and even Kyrie Irving uh, to come there. The Knicks haven't been able to do that. Yeah. Uh, and for the Knicks, the schedule just gets tougher. Uh, they have Miami coming up, two games with Philadelphia, and then a six-game road trip. Uh, their odds of making the playoffs are slim at best. But, you know, having said that, let me ask you this. Just out of nowhere, which front office do you think has done a worse job, the Knicks front office or the Lakers front office? Oh, boy, that's a tough one. Um, well, they're running neck and neck. That's for sure. As far as the Lakers are concerned, um, it's just that the, see, I thought when they added the pieces at the time, they weren't bad, but they just haven't turned out well. Uh, Malik Monk, I thought when they added Malik Monk, I thought that was an absolute steal. He didn't cost them much money, young talent, energetic can come in and help LeBron James and Anthony Davis scoring. And he's been okay, but it hasn't worked out. And, of course, the elephant in the room is Russell Westbrook, um, giving up what amounted to some piece of depth, depth that helped you win a championship, KCP, Montrezl Harrell, uh, and obviously uh, Kyle Kuzma. Uh, and Russ hasn't worked out so far. And I can say that so far is because last year around this time, he wasn't working out in Washington. And then suddenly, the last couple months of the season, he went on fire and pushed that team all the way through the playoffs by way of the play-in situation. It doesn't mean he's going to do it again now in the post-All-Star break, but we've got to give him that chance. He deserves as much. You've got to give him that chance to think that during this All-Star break time, he hit the reset button, and he can try to see what didn't work for him the first few months of this season and apply that lessons learned for the final few months of the season. But it is an interesting question you asked uh, about those uh, two teams and the direction they're going. Uh, you look at the Lakers, they're, what, five or six games out of the sixth spot? They're likely to be uh, in the play-in tournament. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but if I were another team that's in that play-in, I wouldn't want to play the Lakers. Well, no, because I think, and, and again, let's assume best-case scenario here. LeBron stays healthy. Anthony Davis comes back from his uh, foot injury, which is a major. Uh, and Anthony Davis begins to play up, up to the level that Anthony Davis is capable of playing. Again, he hasn't really played that well this season. 
He has been terrible from three-point range and just been okay for the most for his standards. Suppose they come back and they're lights out. And and then Russell Westbrook kind of figures it out. Oh, no. Play-in situation, if you're like the Clippers, I'm looking at you, if you're Portland Trailblazers, the Clippers, and even Minnesota Timberwolves, and those are all the teams in the play-in situation. Oh, no, no. You don't want to play Lakers. And I'll even take it a step further. Who really wants to see the Lakers in the first round? Right. I'm, I, I mean, if you're Phoenix, if you're the Warriors, the Memphis Grizzlies, those are the top three teams in the West, if you draw the Lakers in the first round, I mean, that's not the weak team that you want. You know, that's not the Timberwolves. You know, that's not the Portland Trailblazers or the L.A. Clippers. It's the Lakers and it's LeBron James and Anthony Davis. So that's not the team you really want to play in the first round. Not to say that those three teams couldn't beat them. I would probably say Memphis would be in a, a world of trouble because that's an inexperienced team in the playoffs going up against, you know, uh, LeBron James, who's championship tested and true. Uh Maybe the Warriors and Suns would probably fare a little bit better, but none of those teams really want to see LeBron James or Anthony Davis in the playoffs. No, I, I think a Memphis Lakers series would be must-see TV. LeBron, I mean, John Moran is playing at an enormously high level. You got a bunch of young guys that are playing great. I mean, here they are in the third spot in the West. Uh, Phoenix, good news, bad news. They've won seven in a row going into the second part of the schedule, but they lose Chris Paul. Uh, for the rest of the regular season. That's a huge loss. Now, they got a cushion. They got a seven-game cushion over the Warriors, but that's a big loss when they lost their leader. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if I would signify it as a massive loss, only because you're right. As you said, they have a big cushion. It doesn't really matter if they finish first or second place in the West. It doesn't really matter. Uh, and, you know, um, I, I think they're deep enough to and talented enough to withstand the loss of Chris Paul to an extent. Now, are they going to rip off another eight, nine-game winning streak? Probably not, uh, because Chris Paul means that much to the core of that team. But it's almost this situation is better. This obviously is better. The situation happens now, as opposed to the start of the season, or as opposed to the start of the playoffs. Uh, you know, now they built up enough cushion. You know, their, their team is playing with such confidence uh, that. You know, you feel, and they have enough debt that you feel that, okay, we can be fine. We're not going to probably be as great as we've been all season, but we can be fine. And then Chris Paul will return before the playoffs start, and then, you know, then it's off. Um, the, the recently concluded All-Star game, um, the three-point contest, that was nice. Carl Anthony Towns wins it. Nice to see a big man do it. Uh, the dunk contest to me was boring. Uh, I mean, I couldn't wait for that thing to be done to it. I don't know if you liked it or not, but yeah, Obi Toppin won it. Good for him. And basically it was a yawn. It wasn't like dunk contest that I've seen in the past. And a lot of people look forward to that because usually it's very exciting. There's a lot of entertainment involved. I didn't feel that this time. Well, a couple things. Number one, why is dunk contest last? It's almost like at this point, maybe the three-point contest should be last. And so when a dunk contest is last, you know, and it, and it's the marquee event on the for the show. Then you ha your expectations automatically rise. And I get it. You know, the dunk contest is exciting. It's much more exciting if guys shoot three points. I get that. But also, the dunk contest is you know, the dunk contest is great like once every five years. 
like last year, nobody re- even remembers who won the dunk contest, right? Right. <laughs> it wasn't really that good. And then this year, this time next year, nobody's going to remember Obi Toppin won the dunk contest. Right. It, 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 you know, again. But everybody can remember when Zach Levine and Aaron Gordon won, which was epic. I believe that was in Toronto about four years ago. Uh, it was epic, epic. And no one was saying, oh, we got to get rid of the dunk contest. We got to get rid of the dunk contest. No, 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 no. It was unbelievable theater, unbelievable TV, because those guys were creative, and every dunk was all like a 9 or a 10, and you really didn't want to have a loser. You know. And by the way, if I was Zach Levine, I would have given Aaron Gordon the trophy just so he could go home or something. You know, <laughs> I got the title, but give him the trophy. Anyway, going back to the dunk contest, the best way, obviously, is if you have a little bit more financial incentive to get, you know, a guy like John Moran, uh, to get like a guy, you know, when he gets healthy, uh, Zion Williamson, maybe, uh, or some of the more, the, the guys you know, if you put them in that dunk contest, they're going to be great. The problem is, with the established stars, they're like, they got nothing to win, and they got everything to lose. For example, if LeBron James were to go in his prime, were to go to the dunk contest and lose, people will start clowning on him. Like, oh, yeah, you can't do anything. <laughs> so, I mean, those guys have no financials. When you're making $35, $40, $45 million a year, that little, whatever they're offering those dunk contest winners, it ain't nothing. Then it's not enough for them to go out there and practice some dunks. Before I let you go, there's only one takeaway from this year's All-Star Weekend. Steph Curry put on a show, and I mean a show. Man makes 16 threes out of 27 attempts. You know, the rest of the players in the game were 32 for 94. I mean, Steph Curry, I, you remember when Chris Morris played for the Nets? Yeah. And I used to joke with Chris all the time, because uh, during practice, he would take three-point shots from five feet beyond the half-court line. And I said, when do you think you're going to do this in a game? And I kept thinking about Chris when Steph Curry is lighting it up, and I'm not comparing Chris to Steph Curry, not not by a long shot, but Curry putting him up. The funniest two parts is when he takes one shot from the right corner, puts the shot up, turns around, looks at the crowd, and asks him if it went in. And then another one when he was beyond half court, he throws it up from beyond half court and turns around and walks away, never seeing it go in. I thought he was the show. He was entertaining. He was fun. And my takeaway was Steph Curry was the reason why the All-Star Weekend was fun. Well, you know, he made you forget the dunk contest, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, he put on the show, and then LeBron ends it with the little step-back game-winning shot. Uh, And then, of course, you had all the legends being celebrated at halftime and Michael Jordan making an appearance. By the way, Michael Jordan was at Daytona 500 during the day because he sponsors uh, Bubba Wallace, the driver, and Jordan arrived 30 minutes before halftime. So, and basically he stepped out of his car and, no, I'm not sure, actually it was more like 15 minutes before he was supposed to be introduced at halftime. So, in other words, the halftime ceremony had started and Jordan's car hadn't gotten to the arena yet. <laughs> so you talk about timing. Yeah. And basically, as soon as he steps out of his car, he puts on the jacket, and about three minutes later, they call his name, and he walks out of the arena, says hello to everybody, gives LeBron James a couple hugs, gives celebrities some hugs, gets back in the car, goes back to the, his private jet to the airport, and flies home. 
No, it was fun. It was fun. Hey, Sean, appreciate your insight. As always, always a lot of fun talking to you. Most importantly, you stay safe. Same to you, my man. Appreciate it. He's Sean Powell, NBA.com. That was a great weekend. It really was. It was so much fun. And, and Steph Curry was the reason why it was so much fun. I mean, he 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 put on some performance. Uh, you're just never going to see that again. But, you know, having said all of that, uh, we're going to have a little fun conversation now. At least I hope so. Tony, here he is. Tony, you with me? Howard, how you doing? I'm doing great. How does it feel? Have you walked down from the cloud yet? (laughs) Yeah, I'm back on planet Earth. (laughs) Tony Baselli, one of the recently inductees into the into the Football Hall of Fame. Um, You played seven years with the Jacksonville Jaguars, six-time finalist. And I remember the first year that you were up uh, for the uh, for the Hall of Fame. I think we were doing a game together at that time. Uh, you didn't seem terribly disappointed or stunned, but were you stunned that it took this long to finally get in? You know, that's a great question, Howard. I think it's it's a tough process, and I think it should be. I mean, there's, you know, I even look at the 15 finalists this year, and the, you could argue that the 10 that did not get in all have a great argument. They were great players. They had great careers. And so it's hard. And while... I was disappointed every year. I also respected the process. I respected the guys that got in when I did not. And, you know, it's one of those things you sit back and you hope that, you know, your time will come and that your career will be, you know, judged and kind of held up to be, will hold up to the standard that it would have taken to get the Hall of Fame. So um, it, it, it took as long as it took. And I'm just glad that uh, I'm in now and I don't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah. So, so which was a greater reaction when you found out you were going into the Hall of Fame, or when your wife told you that you were going to have your first boy? Oh gosh, you know I think it's hard to distinguish between great moments in your life. Um, and you know, getting married was a huge day. I mean, I've been married 27 years. My wife's my best friend, and it was one of the greatest decisions I ever made. You know, your kids being born, you find out in the moment that, you know, my first son came out and every other, the other four after that are just magical moments that you never forget. But the Hall of Fame's right there as well. When the knock on the door and you know, I walk out there and see Anthony Munoz with my whole family behind it, it's such, it's such a huge moment. And it's, um, and especially because I felt, it felt like, and I thank my wife and family this, that it was for all of us. You know, obviously it's me going to the Hall of Fame, but we have such a close family and such great, I have such a great, great family and friends that they've been so supportive and they were so excited. So it's hard to distinguish for me, all those big moments in life, um, that, you know, kind of define who we are and it's the good moments, the bad moments and all in between that kind of make you who you are as an individual. And, uh, but the, you know, getting the knock on the door and seeing Anthony Munoz there will, will go down pretty, pretty near the top of the list. It's right up there. Uh, I um, remember being in your home in Ponte Vedra, Florida, and I could sense, my wife and I could sense that you have a great family, a very close-knit family, and a family that looks like they have a whole lot of fun together. Yeah, we have a good time. I mean, it's, uh, my wife calls it Team Baselli, and we all buy into that, and she's the head coach. Um, we're just all role players. Uh, 
but we have, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm a really fortunate, blessed person. And, uh, my, you know, I mentioned my wife, my kids, we, we enjoy being around each other. We do life as a family. Obviously there's ups and downs with anyone who has kids and been married a long time, but having them along, along for the ride, especially my kids, because they, you know, they were too young. Obviously my career got cut short because of injuries. So they don't really remember. They watch videos and they, you know, they kind of know that I was good at what I did and, but they didn't get experience, but they've been, they've been along for the ride. You know, my oldest is 24, my youngest is 12 and all in between. So they get it. And, you know, they were so excited and they've enjoyed all the big events and the times we've had together. So it just goes down on the list of many uh, great times we've had together as a family. Hey, Tony, fill me in on, uh, I remember reading something about, you said that your wife's a good liar, I'm not. Uh, tell me what, what that was all about. Yeah, well, she said, because so they voted on the 18th of January. I didn't find out. The knock came on the 27th, and obviously I had to be quiet. I had to keep my mouth shut until the honor show the Thursday before the Super Bowl. But my wife, the Hall of Fame actually called my wife on the 19th, the day after they voted, and let her know that I had made the Hall of Fame. And because they wanted to organize the knock, and they wanted to make sure where I'd be, and I travel a lot for work. And so, so for almost 10 days, she had to keep a secret and she played it perfectly. I mean, she acted like she didn't know and she was worried and, oh my gosh, what if we don't make, you don't make it this year. And, and she let me just suffer for those nine or 10 days before I actually found out. So, and she organized this whole ruse and got me where she, you know, Hall of Fame was going to do the knock because it wasn't at our house because she had to convince me to come go somewhere else. So, uh. Yeah, she did a great job, I, and I would have never pulled it off. I can't keep a secret. Can't I can't tell a lie. If I know so, the big joke in our family is like I buy a gift for somebody, I want to give it to them that moment. Yeah. I'm so excited to experience where my wife can buy something and hide it and store it for weeks before she uh, pulls it out. No, I'm with you. I feel the same way. I I, I can't wait to give somebody a gift. Um, but I'm with you. All right, let's go back to the Super Bowl weekend. Uh, you were there, right? Uh, you were in California. Yes. Yeah. All right. What was that that emotion like? Um, you're now on the field being introduced to the crowd. And I've been at the Super Bowl before where we would get the uh, some of the inductees up into our booth and we'd interview them. Did that happen to you? No, we didn't. Do, they didn't we, you know, so they did the honors this year on Thursday night. And that was a big moment, probably the Thursday night, where for the first time it was going to be announced to everyone else. And so walking out on, you know, on the stage and it felt – you know, very real at that moment. And all the other Hall of Famers come up and congratulate you. And, and that was awesome. That was an amazing moment. And it just goes through the whole weekend. There's one moment after another, one event after another. And it's a lot of fun. And at the Super Bowl, you know, we had our own suite, the Hall of Famers, and we had a great time. And we did all the interviews before the game. Wow. Uh, so we, we just got to enjoy it. It was fun. It was fun with the kids and, uh, and the family. And uh, we had a good time. I didn't watch much of the game, Howard. This is the least amount of football I watched of a Super Bowl. I was too busy talking and enjoying the moment and, and laughing, and uh, but it was it was great. Uh, the Super Bowl this year, at the beginning of the season, if anybody said they picked Cincinnati to play the Rams in the Super Bowl, you'd say you're full of baloney. Nobody picked that matchup. But it, that for that reason, it was intriguing to me, and I thought the game was very compelling. It came right down to the end. Yeah, it was great. I mean, I think it shows that it gives Cincinnati a ton of credit. And, you know, they, they made some moves in the offseason and strengthened that defense. And it was a good defense. They did a really good job. Um, and they, you know, the, the one bet they made, they said, we're going to go with the top receiver in the draft. And they got Jamar Chase, and that worked. Now, 
having some offensive line issues that got got a little bit exposed, uh, but they were able to overcome it all year. And Joe Burrow is just a he's a he's a stud. I mean, he's that guy. I mean, when he's on your team and you have that quarterback, uh, you know, you have a great chance to you know compete every year for championships. And they have so many skilled positions around him. Jamar Chase, you know, is an amazing player. And so they, you know, I assume they're going to probably spend a little bit of money, uh, some capital on the offensive line, maybe in the draft this offseason. But, you know, with Joe Burrow, uh, I don't think anyone's going to be surprised if they're back in that game. Yeah, I mean, Tennessee sacks him nine times. Uh, the Rams sack him seven times. Uh, and yet he keeps bouncing up and shows this incredible toughness like it doesn't get to him. And that has to infiltrate the huddle. But other players in that huddle look at him and say, I want, I'm going to follow him because he has proven that he can take the hit. Yeah, when you have a competitor like that in your huddle at the quarterback position, I mean, and with the skill sets that he has, it just builds so much confidence on, on the rest of the offense. Not just the offense, the entire team. I mean, everyone knows when you step on the field, when you have a quarterback like that, you have a chance. You have a chance to win. You have a chance to compete. You're going to, you're going to, you're, you're going to be fighting uh, to get in the playoffs every year long as you keep him healthy and so it makes it forces you to dig a little deeper because there's a, there's a real responsibility to say hey this is our guy and we got to keep him healthy we got to keep him upright and if we do that we're gonna be pretty dang good tony baselli newly elected uh, hall of famer let's look ahead five and a half six months to the induction in canton in august i believe i'm not sure of the date i'm sure you got it etched in your memory let's look to that day uh, and, uh, I mean, you, you, you gotta have, I can't even explain what your emotions might be. And I don't even know that you fully recognize it yet. But let's look forward to that day. Uh, most importantly, number one, who makes the present? Have you decided on who's going to present you? I'm in the process. I, I, I think I know, but I haven't told that individual yet. So I'm keeping it under wraps, which is hard for me based on our earlier conversation. Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And I think it's hard to even comprehend the emotion, Howard, because it was so emotional around the Super Bowl and the honors and all the stuff we did there. And I, and I can only imagine that it's going to go to a whole other level when you put the gold jacket on and and your bust is unveiled and all your family and friends and, and former teammates are there. Um, it's going to be overwhelming. And uh, I'm looking, it'll be fun. It's going to be a great time. It, I think it would just be great to celebrate with all the people to help make it happen for me. And I'm really looking forward to it. I, I've talked to a number of Hall of Famers in the past, and the, the emotions, uh, you know, can, can carry you away. Uh, and I, you've probably had some thoughts to that day, but until you get to that day, you don't really fully understand what it's all about. Uh, and here's and your biggest fan, Angie, your wife. Uh, man, you're a lucky guy. you got five kids. you got a beautiful wife. She's... Aside from being, what didn't she win some teen beauty competition in LA? Oh yeah, yeah, she was Miss California, so she's yeah. I'm I'm way out of my league, Howard. I'm way out of my league. <laughs> We've all overachieved in our lives, man. Uh, uh, that's, that's a good place to overachieve in. Yeah, there's no question. Uh, so when you're in the position, people don't fully understand the difficulty of playing the position you played at left tackle because you're going up against the other team's best pass rusher. Who gave you the most trouble? Well, there's so many great players. I mean, I got, I got, I was fortunate to play against, you know, Hall of Famers, All Pro players throughout the years, and 
you know, great battles with Bruce uh, Smith and, you know, Derek Thomas and um, played against John Randall. Probably John, John Randall probably gave me the most fits. Um, just such a great player. But even guys who aren't Hall of Fame, weren't, didn't make the Hall of Fame, but had just great Pro Bowl careers like Michael McCrary for the Ravens. Um, just, you know, it was a privilege to go out there. And I think one of the cool things for me looking back is, is that my teammates and my coaches had the confidence to let me go out there and just block those guys one-on-one. Um, and thankfully, I was more successful than not. But th- that, that was, a, it was a huge challenge. Um, it was a huge responsibility because we didn't help. They didn't send a lot of help at all. And just knowing that your teammates and your coaches have that confidence in you is really cool. And I just, you know, as I look back, and, you know, obviously I wish my career would have been longer. I wish I wouldn't have got hurt. I wish the surgery would have worked. It didn't. And I think the only thing is, like, I just wish I could have done it more because I enjoyed it so much. And I, I just love the game of football. It's given me so much. And just the ability to go compete on the field and just lay it all out there and, and win, lose, or whatever. Obviously, winning is a lot more fun than losing. But just that, just the competitive nature and knowing that it means something, uh, I miss that. And it was a lot of fun doing it. Well, you, you, you played at a high level in college, uh, and then you go into the pros. You have Jacksonville's first draft choice. And talk. do you remember what it was like to go from playing your last college game to playing your first pro game? What was the single most important difference between those two? Yeah, I mean, obviously the players are better. Um, I think the biggest thing for me was I, I remember once I was the – Jags first pick, second overall. Like the the it hit me that like okay now I got to go earn it. it. It was great to get there. It was great to be the top pick. It was great to sign my contract. All good things. But now the responsibility of you know living up to the expectations and like they picked you. They picked me in second overall because they thought I was one of the best players in college football and that could help them win games. And so I always felt that responsibility. And you know going on the field, you know and playing for the first time, more than anything, Howard, I just want to go out there and say, listen, I can do this. And I remember that first game, it was against Sean Jones, great pass rusher. Mm-hmm. For, uh, a lot of, you know, he was at the Packers at the time, and and I was obviously nervous, because you don't know where, you know, you don't know how you're going to measure up until you go do it. And, uh, but that was a big moment, and I remember the first time going out there, and I'm like, okay, I can play this game, I can play at this level. And it just builds your confidence, but it was just, it was just the responsibility of of making sure I honored and lived up to, you know, the, you know, the draft pick that the Jags made me and being the first overall, there's that added responsibility, you know, a new franchise. You're always going to be remembered as that pick. And the uh, last thing I ever wanted to do is, is, is be a bust. I didn't want, I didn't want to be that guy that, you know, you drafted high, it doesn't quite work out. And so I always put a little bit extra pressure uh, with that added responsibility. You know, you just touched a nerve, Tony, because uh, you're talking about failing. And the fear of failing, I think, is the one thing that's always in the back of the mind of every pro athlete, regardless of the sport. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true, Howard. It's a, it's a balance. And I mean, I think the only regret I ever have, looking back on my career, is I probably didn't enjoy it as much because you're always driven by not being satisfied. And sometimes you've got to be careful because you don't really sit back and enjoy the moments. Um, or you, or you better, you know, you better stop and do that because otherwise, you know, it's going to be over before you know it, which happened to me. Um, but there is that definitely a fear of failure. 
because you want to, I mean, you want to be the best. There's something in, in you that is just driven to win and driven to compete and driven to be the best you can to be. And then when you get there and you reach the pinnacle is to stay there. And I think that's even harder. Getting there is tough. Staying there is even more difficult. That's why I have the respect of so many guys, like a guy like Tom Brady, his ability to do what he did over the period of time that he did it. It's just so impressive to me because it's hard. Mm-hmm. You know, just because you get there, there, I mean, everyone's gunning for you at that point. Now it's almost like you have to do more stay at that level. So um, there is that fear of failure. I think it's in a lot of guys, and and you try to – you got to balance that because if you let that eat you up too much – you're not going to have the freedom. You're not going to go out there and play um, to the best of your ability because it'll just make you too tight. And, you know, fear is a dangerous thing to play with. If it's driving you to work harder, it's driving you to be your best, that's a good thing. But at some point when you step on the field, you got to release it all and just go play. Uh, you, uh, Tony Baselli is, is one of the athletes that I've been around that uh, has done something that, uh, that not everybody does. You give back with your foundation. Tell me about the Tony Baselli Foundation. Yeah, we're actually in the midst of a, a little bit of a change. We're actually trying to figure that out because we've gone through a lot of iterations, but it's always been around education and helping kids um, uh, in our in, in Jacksonville. Um, and so that's something, obviously, we you know we always want to have our hand put in our, our fingerprints on the community. And, and my wife and I, as we go into this new stage of life, we're trying to figure out exactly what that looks like and where we want to invest and where can we really make a difference. And so it's something we started the foundation in 1995. And we're kind of looking at what, what is the next stage? What's the next evolution of it? But um, I think giving back to your community has always been important, whether it's through your church, whether it's through, through a foundation, or just, you know, in your neighborhood, just being a good community member. I think uh, I think the world can always use a little bit more of that. You've maintained your connection with the team, with the Jacksonville Jaguars over the course since you retired. Uh, this year was a rough year. Uh, the decision to hire Urban Meyer turned out to be a bad decision. But now... Uh, the arrival of Doug Peterson, in my mind, I think was a great hire amongst the nine jobs that were filled. I think Doug Peterson, first of all, he's a proven winner. He's won a Super Bowl. And now I think he is probably the best thing that happened to Trevor Lawrence. Would you agree? Yeah, I think it was a great hire. I really like, you know, it was a long process. And Shad Khan, the owner, you know, turned over every stone and did a lot of work, interviewed a lot of guys. And I think it was important to get a guy who's done it before. Um, just based on all the things you said, what they went through with Urban Meyer and kind of the dysfunction that was in the building that he kind of he brought in. Um, and you have this great individual in Trevor Lawrence, this great talent. And you don't want to waste that. You don't want to mess him up. And so I think getting a, a mature, proven winner and a head coach, a guy who played quarterback, an offensive-minded guy, was perfect. I think Doug's going to do a great job. And I, I think he'll be able to turn it around. I mean, maybe not everyone wants – immediate results and you want to do what the Bengals did going from worst to first and go play in the Super Bowl. Um, that'd be great if it happens, but I think, you know, I think people under, are excited and know that it might, it's not going to be overnight, but that they can see the light at the end of the tunnel. No, I would agree. And I think the players would buy into that as well. Uh, I remember a, a number of games that you and I have worked, but more than that, it's not the games. It was the night before the game when we would have dinner. And I remember one time, I think you and I killed two bottles of Cabernet, <laughs> and the only yeah, argument we you yeah, can't do that anymore. They made they, I think because of us they limited the uh, what you could expense. So but yes, we had we, we enjoyed some good Italian food and red wine. That's for sure. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, the only argument we had was who's going to who's going to put in this expense report. So I convinced <laughs> I convinced you to do it because management would yell at me. <laughs> oh, we had a good time. I always enjoyed working with you, Howard. There's no doubt about that. And I think the night before was always probably the most fun. Well, uh, when, when it was announced that you were part of uh, the, you were inducted, I have to tell you, I was delighted for you, man. I mean, uh, primarily because I know you and I know what kind of character you have and your family and what a great family it is. But when uh, it was announced and my, and my wife Phyllis and I were watching and we heard the news and she, she looked at me and she goes, you're really happy, aren't you? I said, yeah, I am. I said, I'm happy for a guy that, number one, deserves it. Number two has waited a long time, and it made me, when I was a young kid growing up in Brooklyn, Tony, my, the Brooklyn Dodgers were my, my life as a little boy. So after all the years of frustration, Gil Hodges finally got into the Hall of Fame this year. I mean, it was like overdue. Uh, I, 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 I'm going to say that yours wasn't a long time overdue, but it was a little bit overdue. But I'm thrilled for you. I'm delighted for you and your family. I've told you that before. And um, I can't wait to see you get your, your gold jacket on in August. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks, Howard. Thanks for having me on. And uh, I'm glad you're doing well. And I appreciate all the support. You take care, my man. And don't forget to stay safe. I will for sure. You do the same, my friend. Thanks. He's Tony Baselli, newly inducted Hall of Famer, a friend of mine. Delighted to say a friend of mine, a guy that I have a lot of respect for. Thrilled that he's in the Hall of Fame because he deserves it. A lot of times you don't get what you deserve. And then again, a lot of times you don't deserve, you don't get, you don't get what you really do deserve. And I mean that on both sides, it happens. Fun program for me to do today, gotta tell you. And we've taken a bite of the Big Apple as well. You folks stay safe. Thanks for being a part of Howard David Live.
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.